God, we thank you for your word. We thank you uh, for the scriptures that you give to us. And I pray that you would speak to us through them, individually as well as as a church, corporately, as a community. Pray that you would continue to show us how to love one another more deeply. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 15. And with Christmas around the corner, have you ever received a gift uh, for Christmas that you didn't like? And so let's just take a marriage relationship for, as an example. What if, your, what if your wife really, really liked flowers, um, but her husband always gave her candy? How do you think that would make her feel? And what if the husband's re- reply was that he always got her flowers because he, t- he took a survey, and most wives that he surveyed, they preferred candy. And candy's just easier to handle. It's not as bulky. You can't get pollen all over the place. And when you take it out of the water bucket there, the water doesn't get all over the place. So it's just a better gift. So what's wrong with this husband? He's not listening to his wife. That's his problem. He's treating her as a type of a wife. But he's not treating her as this living individual person who has preferences, who has her own will, who has her own thoughts. Now, what if someone gave you a gift that you really didn't want, and they deliberately didn't give you a gift that you were really hoping for? And you talked about it all year long, and they knew that you wanted this, but they purposely didn't give you what they wanted, and they just got you something else. How would that make you feel? And see, if we, if we truly love someone, we, we have to show them love in their currency, We have to show them love in a way that they would understand what we are trying to convey. And in this chapter, we're going to read about Saul, who decided to do a bunch of religious things, but they weren't the things that God wanted. They weren't the things that communicated to God that he was obedient, that he had a heart for God. And this chapter stresses that outward religious actions or these formal ceremonies, they can't be substitutes for obeying the actual desires of God. And our calling as children of God is to listen. It is to hear the voice of God, His commands, His desires. And it's not about doing formal ceremonies or, or these religious things that we like to do that, that we think will, will show Him that we're religious people. See, divinely anointed leadership is a leadership that listens to God's voice. And to not listen to God's voice, well, that just invalidates the anointing. So let's start in verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore, heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey." You notice that the role of the one who is anointed of the Lord is to listen to the words of the Lord according to verse 1. Now what specific instructions did God give Saul through Samuel in verse 3? Saul was to destroy everything that belonged to the Amalekites. Everything. And in Hebrew, this is called harem. It's a a term often called holy war, or in the Bible, putting something under the ban. And it's to utterly destroy or to devote to destruction. And it actually has a long history in Israel. And every Israelite must have known about this. 
And in a holy war, there was to be no gain for the soldiers. There was to be no gain for the state. There were to be no spoils to be collected for the troops fighting in the war. And that's how soldiers usually got paid. So they, they got reimbursed by taking plunder from their enemies. If they won the war, if they didn't, then you didn't get anything. But in a holy war or, or a ban, nothing was to be taken. And if you want a reference to this, you can look at Joshua chapter 7. All of it, all the spoiled, everything was devoted to the Lord. And so if there was gold or silver or something like that was come across, that, that could possibly be taken to the treasury for the Lord's house. But Israel was not to take any of the spoil. And it was an act of God's utter judgment. Something that was to be carried out on God's behalf. And to disobey this ban was to violate the direct command from the Lord. And so some of us may be confused with how God could be like this because we read of verses like in Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, where it's written that you may be sons of your Father in heaven, for He makes His Son rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So how can the God of Matthew be the same God of 1 Samuel chapter 15? It doesn't seem right. I think we have to acknowledge a couple of things here. Let's first acknowledge that this utter destruction order from God it was a horrific thing. It, it wasn't uh, a cool thing that God wanted. Um, and I think everyone's in agreement with this. It wasn't a cool, neat thing. And secondly, let's acknowledge that the Word of God is true. But that doesn't mean that the Word of God is sanitary or hygienic or clean, friendly, nice. But it's truth, regardless whether it fits into our thinking or not, whether we agree with it or not, it's truth. So with those two acknowledgments, how can this be the same God that's spoken of in Matthew? How can that be? Well, in this specific case, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, this is a virtuous vengeance. And there would be something wrong if, if, if it was vengeance just for vengeance sake or vengeance that was just to be malicious. But this is vengeance that is a just vengeance. This was a virtuous vengeance, which, which was proper. And you, you might ask, how is vengeance ever proper? How, how can that be? Well, to get a better understanding of this, we have to take a look at Exodus chapter 17. We have to get the background information from Exodus 17 verses 8 through 16 to understand this virtuous vengeance. In Exodus chapter 17, it tells us about when Israel was coming out of Egypt and Amalek attacked the Israelites and Joshua led the fight against Amalek and that's when Aaron and Hur hold up Moses' hands and whenever he dropped those hands, they started losing. Whenever they held the hands up, Israel was winning. And then in verse 14, the Lord said to Moses, Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. And then you get to Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, where it reads, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear, your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance that you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. This was what God was telling Saul to carry out. He was telling him to carry out this judgment. And the Amalekites were these plunderers who, who had robbed, who had murdered the weakest Israelites. 
ever since they came out of Egypt. And they, they were known as these wandering plunderers that were living on the edge of civilization. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, we learned that they would prey upon the weak, that they would prey upon the straggling of the Israelites. They would brutally attack them, rob them, kill them. And what the Lord was going to do was He was going to eliminate, that He was going to judge these vile plunderers. And He decided to use Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Amalek was going to receive this virtuous Justice that the Lord spoke about in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. But we can reason to say that the, the Amalekites in Saul's day, you know, that, that was several hundred years ago. That was several hundred years removed from Moses' day. And it was a horrible thing that they did. We, we know that. We acknowledge that, that. We're not justifying what they did back then. You know, they, they killed the weakest of Israelites. They killed those stragglers who, who couldn't keep up with, with the group. And... But how can this current generation be held for something that that generation did, that their ancestors did? That doesn't seem right. Can can they be guilty for what others centuries earlier did, uh, generations earlier did? Can they be accountable to that? That's not right. We have to remember that the Lord is all-knowing throughout all time. And that the Lord means what He said. And that's what he said in Exodus. That's what he said in Deuteronomy. And also, if the Amalekites were to repent of their ways, the Lord may have shown mercy. But you look at verses 18, 32, and 33, which give us glimpses into who the Amalekites were in Saul's day, in 1 Samuel chapter 15 days. And we're going to jump ahead a little bit to verse 18 to address this. And in verse 18 we read, Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Samuel reminds Saul that God sent Saul on a mission to utterly destroy the sinners. The sinners. Which is a clue to us that Amalek hasn't changed. And that the Amalekites are the same as before. They haven't turned from their evil ways. They haven't repented. And then you jump to verse 33 where it reads, But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Just an extremely gruesome scene here as Samuel hacked Agag to pieces. But did you hear what Samuel said to Agag before he did that? As your sword has made women childless. So shall your mother be childless among women. So it wasn't just the past Amalekite generations that were guilty. It's also the current generation of Amalekites in Samuel's day who were guilty for operating in similar ways to their ancestors. And God wanted Saul to carry out this judgment on Amalek. And this is like Jesus in principle. You're like, really? Jesus? Baby Jesus? He does this? Yeah, in principle. There's a similarity in Matthew chapter 25 with the parable of the sheep and the goats being separated at the final judgment. In Matthew 25, we find the Son of Man sitting on the throne, starting in verse 31. Let's just read through that. 31 through... uh, Let's read a good chunk of it. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He will set the sheep on His right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on His right hand, Come. Come. 
You blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of my brethren, you did it to me. Meaning that if you fed, if you clothed, if you cared for the least believer in Jesus, one of his brothers, one that is the bottom of the barrel, one that is no status, one that is the bottom rung like uh, a pastor at regeneration, uh, just an absolute nobody. The last guy you'd pick to be on your kickball team. I hold no resentment. But you did what you did because the least, the straggler, the weakling belonged to Jesus. As, it's as if you did it to Jesus himself. What you do to Jesus' people, you do to Jesus. Let's continue on in verse 41. Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord... When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them and saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And this is the flip side of verse 40. And addressing those who didn't give food, who were the least, who were hungry, who weren't clothed, they weren't cared for. When Jesus' people, the least of his people, weren't cared for, they will be judged as if Jesus himself was not cared for. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's also how Jesus addressed Paul on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, verses 3 through 4. Verse 3, as he, Paul, as he, Paul, journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He wasn't persecuting Jesus, was he? Saul was persecuting Jesus' people. But it's the least of his people, which is him. So he was persecuting Jesus. Jesus himself. That's why Jesus asked Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus, God, he takes it really personal when his people are harmed. When his people are hurt. When God's people are attacked. God is attacked himself. And it's the same principle in Matthew 25 and what was happening in 1 Samuel chapter 15. How Jesus' people are treated determines the judgment received. How God's people are treated determines the judgment they will receive. And as Christians, you know, I I think we should really have some t-shirts made that just say, don't mess, bro. And wear it. Because how Jesus' people are treated 
will bring about judgment on the offender. Sorry. Right? Jesus doesn't want anyone harming his sheep. And it's really dangerous for someone out there who doesn't know to harm one of his sheep. And if anyone messes with God's people, there's going to be a price to pay. God doesn't forget the injustices inflicted on his people. And vengeance is the Lord's. Just as Hebrews chapter 10 verse 30 tells us. Let's continue on in 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 4. So Saul gathered the people together and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to a city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, get down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the children of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. We see that Saul was uh, an extremely successful military commander, and we also see that he was kind. He was kind to the Kenites who were, were innocent and didn't plunder the, the straggling Israelites. And something interesting about verses 5 through 9 is that Saul is the subject of almost every verb in those verses. Five times he's specifically named as the actor of these verses, and then he's implied in the other two sentences. And the author is clearly showing that Saul is a key actor in these verses, a key figure. And the entire battle is cast as a response by Saul to the Lord's command. So did Saul and the Israelites obey the command of the Lord to destroy the Amalekites? Yes and no, right? They did destroy the Amalekites, but Saul and the military decided to keep the best of the spoil and, and they decided to keep the king alive. And what was meant to be a divine judgment was not meant for Israel to cash in on the prizes of the Amalekites. Verse 10, Now the word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night. So when Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, it was told Samuel, saying, Saul went to Carmel, and indeed he set up a monument for himself, and he had gone on around, passed by, and gone down to Gilgal. Notice that in verse 11, that Saul once followed the Lord. He has turned back from following me, it says in verse 11, meaning that he once followed the Lord and he turned away. And Saul was still religious, but he, he turned away from following the Lord as the Lord was looking at his heart. And before that, it's even mentioned, you see that God's response to Saul was regret. He regretted, he grieved that Saul had turned away out the way that turned out the way that he was. And, and we see that God was portrayed as the one who hurts emotionally when we turn away from him. God isn't some unfeeling, calculating force, but one who deeply cares about what we do, how we do things, who we become. And some translations have the word repent in that verse, but it's not the same meaning in that it's repenting of sin. 
If it were that word, it would be a different Hebrew word. It would be a totally different Hebrew word that means to turn or to turn away if it were in regards to repenting of sin. But the Hebrew word used here is of regret, of sorrow, or, or grief in the emotional sense. And we see that Samuel is also grieved about this. And in Hebrew it says he was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. And we're not told what he was angry about or whether it was with Saul or with himself anointing Saul or with the situation, but we can clearly see that he's not happy, that he's upset. And what he was crying about all night isn't given to us either. We don't know if it was over Saul or if it was over Israel. All we know is is he's really upset. Then Samuel went to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have utterly destroyed. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. Do you notice how Saul was initially so excited? He said to Samuel, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. He just had this great victory over the Amalekites. He he set up this monument for himself in verse 12. And then he blesses Samuel. And and Saul thought he he did some great things. And he he believed that he was obedient. And all the while, he's, he's blind. He's blind to what was really wrong. And Samuel asked about the bleeding of the sheep, the lowing of the oxen, which implied that Saul's claims of obedience were false. The presence of those animals represented Saul's disobedience. Then we notice that Saul doesn't fess up. In verse 15, he blamed the people. They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen. And then he gave religious, a religious excuse for disobeying God, and, and he claimed that he, he had done well. See, Saul was kind of answering on both ends of his mouth. He was just, he wasn't acting like a man of God. And he was putting the best spin on, on the circumstances that he could. And he forgot who he was talking to. He was talking to a man of God who had heard from the Lord. He forgot that. And you look at verse 15 again because there's something interesting here. You look at the pronoun used to refer to God in verse 15. Your. For the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Not my God. Not our God. Your God. And this phrase, your God, will continue throughout the dialogue with Samuel, as we will see in verses 21 and 30. And it's as if, as if it's this subtle reflection to reveal how, how far Saul really is from a true relationship with God. And it seems like Saul was trying to distance himself from Samuel, the man of God, the prophet of God, and from God, your God. Verse 17, so Samuel said to Saul, when you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. 
and gone out on the mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of things which should have utterly, utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. Now there's a rhetorical question in verse 17. And what it's getting at is that Saul once knew where he was from. He knew his origin, where he came from. He knew his humble beginnings. He was once this humble man that couldn't even come out of the baggage to be acknowledged as king. He knew God was the one to make him king, to anoint him as king. And Samuel was reminding Saul of his mission, which was to, be com- to completely destroy, to enact a just vengeance, not to get off as a, as a rich guy from this spoil, from this plunder. You are to enact a judgment, not to get, get rich. What's this all about? And we're told of what Saul did wrong in verse 19, and we're given three reasons. First one, disobeying the voice of the Lord. Second one, breaking the ban on, on the spoil. And the third one, doing evil in the sight of the Lord. And what Saul did was put aside the will of God. God's very voice, he just put aside you know, why, is, why is that wrong? It seems okay, right? He, he went to war, he paid the soldiers. What's wrong? Because to knowingly disregard the will of God is to become our own God. To decide on our own. Without God. Independent of God. What is good and what is evil. What is sinful and what is not sinful. Believing that we have the knowledge of good and evil. Which is idolatry. Isn't that what Adam and Eve were guilty of in Genesis chapter 3, verse 5? It's idolatrous because we place ourselves in the place of the Lord when we decide to act on our own to decide what is good and what is evil instead of what He's telling us what is good and what is evil. And Saul doesn't confess to his sin. Rather, he puts this positive spin on his actions and pointed out all the good that he did. And he did do good. He did a lot of good things. But he has now put himself in the place of deciding what issues were to be obeyed and what issues were not to be obeyed. And Saul is like so many of us in that we, you know, we're questioned about our sin or, or why we've compromised what God has given us instructions on. Uh, and we don't really quite answer the questions when they're directed to us. But we go on telling how much good we have done or, or how much when, when we compromise on things and people believing in different things and, and we, we start justifying why it's okay for them to believe a certain thing and, and we start s- saying things like, oh, they've, they've done so much good or they do this and they do that and rationalizing why we are defending sin. And instead of taking responsibility, Saul blamed the people. Instead of us taking personal responsibility of what's going on, we, we tend to look at other people and why oh, my dad or my mom or I grew up this way, I grew up that way. And yeah, to a certain extent, you have those things. But ultimately, you have to take responsibility. Verse 22, So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed them than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. 
And what Samuel meant here is that, you know, these formal religious rituals and ceremonies, they're, they're okay, but, but they don't please God like obedience does. And Saul had, Saul had all these partial acts of obedience, but he didn't do as the Lord instructed. It wasn't a complete obedience. It was disobedience. And disobedience to God tells us to do... It's the same as playing with the occult or idolatry. It's the same as believing in a false religion. And so you also see this air of arrogance here. There's this arrogance in rebellion. There's an arrogance in stubbornness. There's a pride in all of this stuff. And Samuel wasn't mincing his words here. And this this would have seemingly deeply offended and it would have deeply troubled Saul. And Saul threw every excuse back at Samuel, trying to spin things positively, trying to manipulate the situation and, and make things seem like they're okay. And Saul was the one who was really careful about being religious, as we've seen through the book of Samuel. And if we were looking at Saul from the outside, he would have looked like an awesome religious leader. Look at that guy. He prays before every battle. He brings a priest with him wherever he goes. What a religious guy. He sacrifices. Even if Samuel didn't show up yet on the seventh day, he's the one that did it. What a religious guy. All the good church stuff on the outside, everything lined up, but he wasn't. God was not impressed with Saul's religious activities. He knew Saul's rebellious, arrogant, stubborn heart, that it rejected him. So Saul will also be rejected to be king, as verse 22 tells us. And the heart is one of the major themes in 1 Samuel. And God knows our hearts, and His knowledge of us goes far beyond our appearances, far beyond our little things that we put out in front of us, or how we want to appear, or how to make things, to spin things around so that it looks okay on the outside. But it's the heart. We really need to take a good look inside of us. What's really going on inside? And we can look fine on the outside and have the appearance that we have it all together and religiously we're all cool and, oh, I pray this much, I do my quiet times, I do all this. But what's going on inside? You know, this church is over 90 years old, I think. And uh, on the outside, it looks good, right? Looks like a great church, good structure. But, but you know, inside, it's been treated for termites many times over the years. Over the, it's been treated for termites. And, and that deep within the church, there was some decay. And if it wasn't addressed, eventually that decay will necessitate that this entire building be condemned. So the very insides of the church need to be looked at to ensure the health of the rest of the church. May we be able to see our heart, the inside, and address what's going on inside so that it doesn't destroy everything else. And whether we're just being partially obedient, which is idolatry, and be able to see how rebellious we really are, how, how arrogant we really are. Verse 24, Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may worship the Lord. And it appeared that Saul was sincere here, but who knows? Only the Lord knows, right? 
He confessed that he had sinned and that he had broken the Lord's commandment. It took a long time to get to this point, as you can see. Uh, and, and we're not able to tell what brought about this confession. Whether it was the threat against his kingship or, or that his disobedience is just like idolatry and witchcraft. But Saul does admit whom he is afraid of. And it's not God. He's afraid of the people. It wasn't the fear of God. It was the fear of people. And Saul also starts equating the Lord's command with Samuel's commands. And we're not told why he does this, but, but he was apologizing to Samuel and he, he confessed his wrong as a, as a violation of, of God's commandments, of Samuel's commandments. And we're not sure if his confession is a true confession or if he's just uh, kind of just playing the part or if he's genuinely sorry. We, we can't tell. It's really hard to tell from outward appearances, right? And we, we can take the apology face value as an act of sincere repentance, but we really don't know the heart. And it looks like Saul is afraid of the people knowing the truth about Samuel's disapproval. Verse 26, But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And as Samuel turned around to go away, Saul seized the edge of his robe, and it tore. So Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to your, a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now, please, before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me, that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Samuel doesn't believe Saul's apology is sincere. In verse 26, Samuel told Saul he was still in a state of rejecting God's word, and therefore rejected by, by God to be a king. And verse 26 is a key verse in this chapter, as it shows things haven't changed in Saul's heart. And in verse 29, he lets Saul know that the statement of Saul being dropped from kingship was not just a threat. This was a done deal. This was, this, that was it. And it wasn't that Saul couldn't make things right with God. He could. But as far as his kingship was concerned, that, that was done. That was lost. But instead of worrying about his relationship with God to be right, he appeared more worried about his public appearance and his image before the people. So it seemed that Saul was not concerned about his relationship with God as he didn't pray and confess directly to God. And what seemed to make Saul take this issue seriously was the threat to his power, the threat to his public image, the portrayal of his, his public image. And his confession wasn't driven by a repentant heart, but how things would look, the outward appearance. And he was willing to confess privately to Samuel, but you notice that he constantly referenced his public image his elders, his people, and how he was portrayed to everyone was really important to him. Saul really wanted to be religious. He really wanted to look good on the outside. But he didn't want to take God seriously as a person who, who has a will and, and, and is a living God. And Saul wanted Samuel to honor him before the elders of the people. And he was more concerned with the outward appearance more than he was what was going on inside his heart. 
And he wanted to keep things right in the public's eyes. And, and it, he was driven by this appearance to make sure everything on the outside, it has to look good for me. I, I can't let them see what's going on inside. And there's something interesting in verse 29. Samuel said that God will not relent, meaning he doesn't change his mind. But then doesn't that seem to contradict verses 11 and 35 because God regretted? Because how can you regret if you don't change your mind? How can God regret if he doesn't change his mind? Because he must have known that this was going to happen. So just as Desi says to Lucy, Lucy, you have a splendid to do. There's this delicate balance that is really common throughout Scripture. And yes, God in some sense changes his mind. You heretic. Let's take a look at a few verses. Let's look at Exodus chapter 32, verse 14. And there are actually 28 other times where God is said to regret or repent. Not repent of sin. And to go over all these 29 scriptures would be too long, right? But, but what all these various situations have in common is that there's a definite emotional aspect to all these references. And you just let's just take a look at one of them. Genesis 6.6 6. And the Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. And in this verse, we can, we can sense the passion, the, the emotions in God who deeply loves humans, and He deeply grieves about our choices. And God is deeply concerned when we sin and we reject Him because He's the source of life. And he knows that we are going to die without him. God so deeply loves us. And therefore, he can grieve. We can hurt God. And this is what verses 11 and 35 are saying in 1 Samuel chapter 15. Back in verse 11, there's this great tragedy in that Saul refused to be his follower. And that deeply grieved God. And it's not that... God was grieved because he lacked the foresight. But it's showing that God grieved over his lack of obedience. God's a living God. right? He's not emotionless. He's, he's a living God. He cares. So in verse 29, we see that Samuel said, God will not relent or he will not change. But God is moved. God is not fickle. He doesn't try to run mind games on us and just tell us things that He doesn't really mean. He, he doesn't act like we do and where our words can be cheap. God feels. God's not this stone-cold force that just exists and nothing influences, nothing uh, penetrates His heart. Samuel's trying to get across to Saul, who seemed to think that this issue was just going to blow over and, and it didn't blow over. And this isn't an issue that could just be swept under the rug. And, and that Saul can't just go back to being religious, yet being disobedient to God. And God is not going to relent in rejecting Saul's kingship. And he's not going to relent on allowing Saul's kingship to be passed on to the next generation. Regardless of how qualified Jonathan is. And God is not going to change his mind about Saul being rejected as king. He won't change his mind about him having a dynasty. Verse 32 of Samuel. Then Samuel said, Bring Agag king of the Amalekites here to me. So Agag came to him cautiously, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. 
But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag in pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house of, uh, at Gebeah of, of Saul. And Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. And Agag thought he was home free. He thought he escaped, but he didn't. And, and from here we see that Samuel and Saul, they, they part ways, and it wasn't something that God or Samuel were happy about. Now, now we know that God is perfect. And so we might question how can a perfect God feel sorrow or regret or grief? How can that be? How can a perfect God feel those things? But God being perfect doesn't mean that there's an absence of those things as much as it means that those things are perfected in Him. That the pain that God feels is the pain as it should be. That if God has this hurt, how it must be a perfect hurt and how deeply it penetrates God's heart. And it's because God is unchangeable in His holiness that He hurts so deeply over our sin. So, so what we see in changes in, in God's emotions is derived from ways that He's unchangeable. Like His holiness. And in God's unchangeable, holy character, it demands that God reacts emotionally the way that He does when His children He loves so deeply sin. We are never going to know how much grief God actually feels over our sin, over our rebellion. And we might get a little glimpse of the pain our Lord and Jesus felt upon the cross and understand that a little bit more. Because a lot of people were crucified by the Persian Empire, by the Roman Empire, so it's like, oh, that's, a, that's pain, yeah, but a lot of people went through that pain. So what's the big deal? Because in terms of hurt and pain, there's no one else who could understand the depth of that hurt and pain because no one can empathize to the pain as perfectly as Jesus. Our sin. No one can feel that pain as perfectly as God. And on the flip side, no one can experience the joy that God experiences when someone repents. When someone acts in obedience. And Saul did have the option to repent. And he did have the option to enter this life of obedience. Even after being told he was rejected as king. That he was no longer going to have a, a kingly line. And even after Samuel and God grieved over Saul regarding him being king. Saul still had a choice. That he could have made to get things right with God. Even though he was going to be replaced as a king. And even though he wasn't going to serve the Lord as a king, he could have still chosen to serve the Lord simply as a follower of God. He didn't have to be as a king. He could have acknowledged that he was rejected as a king and that he could, didn't have a dynasty after him. He, he, he still could have got things right with God. He still could have been a child of God, regardless of being a king or not. And that... That would have been the appropriate response. Right? He, he, he couldn't because he had a rebellious heart. 
because of his arrogance, his stubbornness, his pride. He rather maintained the appearances rather than deal with inside. That he'd rather look good before his elders, look good before his people. And he couldn't move forward with a good relationship with God because he couldn't put aside his earthly titles. He couldn't put aside his appearance in the public. He couldn't put aside his arrogance. He was too self-absorbed and thought too highly of himself that he knew better, that he could judge between good and evil. And oftentimes we prefer religion over faith. We prefer to live lives, lives of religiosity rather than lives of obedience to God. And we prefer to outwardly show the motions of obedience rather than true repentance inside the heart. That we'd rather do these, these, this checklist of things to, to look like we're doing the right things. Checking into a 12-step program, getting counseling, reading these books, doing all this. All this checklist of stuff. But it doesn't matter if nothing's going on inside. Just chuck it. Don't do those things. It's a waste of time. you got to do this. May we not play the charade of repentance. May we cast aside our rebellious hearts. If you're listening to this message, it's proof to you that it's not too late to repent. There are things that we can do no matter where we are right now. We can repent. We have that option. It does, you can let go of your title. You can let go of these outward appearances. You can let go of everything. And be obedient and walk in obedience simply as a child of God. And isn't that good enough? That's awesome. You're a child of God. And we can be obedient, put aside our own agendas, put aside our own pride, our own stubbornness, the things that we want to accomplish rather than what God wants to accomplish, and address our hearts. Let's pray. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit to convict us of when we are more concerned of things that aren't of concern to you. That we be people of obedience. That you desire obedience over sacrifice. Lord, help us to acknowledge where we have gone astray. And I pray, Lord, that just wherever we are right now, if we need to get things right with you, that we would. That we, even if it means things not looking right on the outside, that we would simply be a child of God. Even if it means that we're no longer a king, that we would get things right with you. Lord, help us to be very introspective as to the sin in our life, knowing that that pain is so deep for you. Yet your joy is so great when we are obedient, when we turn from our sin, when we repent. May we be people who don't desire to, to hurt you, but, but love you. In Jesus' name, amen.